Amen. The reading of God's word this morning begins in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2, and we'll begin in verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, Neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. And after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in its toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made requests of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. We'll turn now to Romans chapter 6, reading verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of, of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's now turn to the back of our bulletins and we'll read together Psalm 144, verses 1 through 11. Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me, and deliver me from the many waters, from the hands of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you. 
who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. If you've forgotten where we are because we've moved so fast, we're in Colossians chapter 2. My father called to ask if I was going to finish this section up to verse 15 yesterday, and I said, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you know at 11 o'clock on Sunday. So I'm still not sure. We're slowly meandering our way through Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. And you remember the primary command in dominating this main section of the epistle is to walk in Christ Jesus the Lord and to walk according to Christ. And he's going to give us truth here, the, the, the truth that we, we read in these sections is not what we usually think of as the specific application. So what exactly is Paul getting at when he tells us he wants us to walk in this way? He's giving us a foundation. So the space in which we walk, the manner in which we walk, and the rest of the epistle is going to be devoted then to some more specificity if you're, if you're waiting for that application and, and the Bible beating to commence. Well, we'll get there eventually. But right now... He is building out the basis. So how do you walk according to Christ Jesus? How do you walk in Christ Jesus? You walk, and it's, it's the opposite of walking in a love of false wisdom. So he says, see to it that no one takes you plunder, that no one cap captivates you with a love of wisdom, a philosophy. And of course, he's not talking about there, remember, just loving wisdom, but loving a fake wisdom, an empty, deceptive wisdom. And so we walk in the love of true wisdom. And he's telling us then what that looks like, who true wisdom is contained in, and, and where we're walking towards. So if you would, listen again to Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. As you therefore have received Jesus the Christ, the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith as you were instructed and overflowing with thanksgiving. See to it that no one captivates you through philosophy, through empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells in body, and in him you have been filled, and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the stripping of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through, the working, through faith and the work of God who raised him from the dead, 
And when you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having blotted out the handwriting of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had stripped the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. If you would pray with me. Father, we come to your word, and we ask that you would speak through our Savior, Jesus. Lord, uh, that you would enliven us with the Spirit to hear the words that you've given us and to be ready to obey them. Build us up in the root of faith in which you founded us. Establish us and fill us to the point where we're overflowing with thanksgiving. We ask you these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So remember, we're, we're kind of in the middle of this three-in-him section that begins in verse 9. So we walk not according to uh, the tradition of men, not according to the elementary principles of the world, but rather according to Christ. And then he grounds that with a because, because in him. Because in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Because in Jesus, God dwells completely. Of course, we know that. We're founded in that doctrine that Jesus is Yahweh, that he is one with the triune God. Jesus is indwelt by the Spirit. In every way imaginable, Jesus has the fullness of God. But what's surprising and what we need to remember that Paul wants to highlight for us, what's, what's new in this verse, is, is not that the second person of the Godhead has, is God but that the second person of the Godhead is dwelling in a body. In him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And it's this truth that is part of the basis then of that confession that we've been meditating on. Jesus, God who saves, is both Christ and Lord. In him, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And remember, that is, that is part of the conundrum of God's word and that we who are made of flesh, we who dwell in a body of flesh, we're only enlivened by the Spirit. If the Spirit departs, we have no life in us. We're made of, of dirt and God's breath. And so in Him, then we see this answer. In Him, the fullness of God. Not, not kind of as in our experience where God's common grace gives breath or the breath of life that gets extinguished. To, to mankind, but the fullness of God dwells in bodily form in Jesus. And secondly, the important second attribute that we need to understand how we walk according to Christ, why we walk according to Christ, is, is not only because the fullness of God dwells in Him in body, but in Him we are also filled. If your Bible translates that as complete, it's the same, same pleru word, we're, we are filled. And we should now be thinking of the fullness of the temple imagery that begins in the Old Testament in which God comes and dwells in the midst of man. So both individually and corporately together, God comes to dwell in our midst. And so we walk according to Christ, not according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, but because we see in Christ, everything that we would want is given. The fullness of God dwells in Him, in body, and in Him, 
we are also filled up. He hasn't defined that for us yet. We're going we're to see that played out here in the, in the rest of the epistle. But what does it mean then to be filled with God in Christ? What does it mean that God dwells in our midst? What implications does that have for us? But before we, before we go on then, he adds this addendum, and he is the head of authority. So we right away see something about what that means. You see, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus in body. In him we're filled, and he is the head of all rule, all beginnings, all powers, whether on earth or in heaven. And he dwells in us. So part of what it means that we're filled up with the fullness of God is that the head dwells in us, and thereby we have the, the uh, overcoming of the old, old world rule and authority, of those, those rulers and authorities that are passing away, and we are lifted up to take that place of rule and authority in Christ. We're crowned with glory and honor in Christ. More on that in a bit. Verse 11, so now we have, uh, we talked about those two things last week. Now we have the third. We're, we're moving rapidly. We're getting to this final in him, and we're going to cover it. In him, you were circumcised. Simple enough, right? In him, you were circumcised. And it's kind of odd to think about how this fits with the other two. They're, they're grandiose. The fullness of God dwells in bodily form in Jesus and we are filled then in, in him. We share in that fullness. But this third in him, it doesn't at first seem as, as grand, a, a reason why we would walk according to Christ. But it, it should fall into place here in a minute. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the stripping of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we have, we have three terms here that we've got to work through. First of all, what is circumcision? And secondly, what is circumcision made without hands? Why is that critical? Why does he add that as a modifier that we're circumcised with a circumcision made without hands? And then he, he defines it further as that circumcision that's done without hands is the stripping of the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. So we've got to talk about each of those, each of those three phrases the circumcision, the circumcision made without hands, and then the circumcision made without hands, that is the stripping of the body of flesh. Circumcision is a big topic in the Bible. It's all, it's from, from Genesis 17 onwards, the theology of circumcision is uh, built out for us in, in a way that, I guess, few systematic theologies are. We don't think a lot about circumcision. Parents decide when they have a baby boy whether they're going to circumcise or not. And we, when we're not thinking about, you know, the, the small children running around in our midst, we tend to associate circumcision with something that's bad because we're steeped in Paul's letters, and he tells us not to get circumcised lest, lest you forfeit the spirit. But circumcision has, has a meaning, and when we want to come back and say, all right, what is Paul trying to communicate to us when he says, in him you were circumcised? I think we need to start back again in Genesis 6. I, I think I went back here before, but we're going to go back one more time. So keep your finger in Colossians and turn with me to Genesis 6, and I want to see two, two ideas here. Genesis 6 is the culmination of the growth of sin in mankind. God has put mankind through three trials, a trial of priesthood in which he's supposed to wait on God. Adam failed. 
a trial of kingship in which there's a brotherly strife, Cain failed, and then a trial of intermixing in which out in the world the sons of God mixed with the daughters of men and they failed. So sin grew and grew and grew. And if you read the story, that growth of sin turns into violence that increases in violence. And so there's murder and strife filled throughout the land. And you come to chapter 6 and God is looking down on man. And what he says in verse 3, Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is flesh. So the problem is set up that from Genesis 1, the spirit hovered over the surface of the dark of the deep, and the spirit came and breathed life into the dust, making mankind. And now God says, my spirit will not strive with man forever. My spirit will not struggle with man forever, and the reason is because he is flesh. Paul is going to pick up this word flesh, and he does it in, in his epistles, and he, he builds it into this, this big word in my house, we translate the word flesh, meat sack. So you come on, you, you, you take a, a bit of skin, squish it between your fingers. That's what your flesh is. It's the sack of meat that hangs on your bones. And in it, then, is all the weakness of mankind. And God says, my spirit is not going to strive with mankind forever because he is flesh. And the result of that, of course, is death. Now, Paul tells us that sin, that, that Sin is the driver behind death, but that sin takes residence in flesh. So you, you know this story. Verse 5, Yahweh saw that the wickedness man of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And Yahweh was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. In verse 7, then Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, two things here. One is the, the verb that he uses. God says, I'm going to blot out man. I'm going to take my thumb and scrape him off. Um, there might be a bit more to that, but that, that word is... The, the word that we see at the end of our passage today. And so we're going to come back and pick up this idea of blotting out. In, uh, in the NASB, the translation in, in, in uh, Colossians is canceling, there in verse 14. He cancels the handwriting of debt consisting of decrees against us. But, but the, the word is exalifo. It means blot out. And it's a word that has to do with anointing. You, you cover something up. And in the Hebrew, that's the same idea. God is going to cover the earth with water. So he's going to take water and he's going to fill up the face of the earth. And thus he's going to blot out man's flesh in which sin is residing. Because the wickedness of his heart is uh, it's nothing but wickedness in his heart. Every thought and intention of his heart is, is wickedness continually. Second thing we need to observe then from verse 7 is that that blotting out of mankind doesn't stop at mankind. Instead, that blotting out of mankind extends to all of created life. So every flesh, there's a corollary of flesh in birds and beasts and every creeping thing. So everything that shares in the flesh of mankind is also blotted out. And so you can go on and verse 17, Behold, I'm bringing the flood of water upon the earth. This is how God does the blotting. 
And I'm going to destroy all the flesh in which is the breath of life. That word breath, remember, is the same word for spirit. So the spirit of life, which God's spirit dwells. He makes our lungs pump in and out. He gives us life. And ultimately, of course, we're looking for true life, which we're going to define in the book of Colossians. But I'm going to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is on earth shall perish. So everything between heaven and earth is going to die. Birds, animals, creeping things. He's not yet destroying the heavens and the earth, but everything else, the breath of life is taken out of. So if you skip over to chapter 7, and then we see the fulfillment of what God says is going to happen. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher in verse 20, and the mountains were covered. So the very top of the highest mountain was covered up with water, and God completed the blotting so that there's nothing now but water on the surface of the earth. It looks just like Genesis 1 one, one, two, except for the fact that you have this ark floating on the surface of the water. And all flesh that moved, verse 21, on the earth perished. Birds, cattle, beasts, every swarming thing that swarms on the earth and all mankind, and all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. And thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. They were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left and together with those that were with him in the ark. They have this ark floating on the surface of the blotting, and everything else is removed, and specifically, all flesh. The spirit was removed from all flesh. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, once the spirit is extinguished from all flesh, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him, and God caused the spirit to pass over the earth. And so the spirit returns now, and the waters subsided. All right, why is that important? It's important when we go to look at what circumcision is. It's God's answer to, uh, to his promises. In chapter 9, um, Abram gets off the boat, sorry, Noah. Noah gets off the boat. He makes sacrifices, and God establishes his covenant with him, and he expands then the covenant and he says that I'm going to, chapter 9, verse 11, establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. This word cut off is, is, is related to circumcision. There's a, a cutting. And so the flood itself in which God blotted out all flesh in which the spirit of life dwelled is a cutting off of Wickedness, the wickedness of flesh. God does it by stamping it all out. And if you know who the person of God is, you know that God was patient. He waited and he waited and he waited until there was only one man left, righteous and blameless. Not one single righteous person died in that flood. They were all utterly wicked. And God rescued him through the flood, reestablished his covenant, and then promised, I will not cut off flesh. You see that word again. By the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And so he establishes the sign of the covenant, which is a bow in the clouds, and he makes peace with mankind. And he's looking forward then to the fullness of God's people built up as cut stones in a temple that starts to look like a rainbow when you get to Revelation. And so if you, if you don't quite understand this yet, that's okay. As you study Revelation, 
when you finally get there, we're built up as precious stones. God, the light, is in the center. He shines out through all these stones, making a rainbow that surrounds his throne room. And the sign looks forward into the future, which casts a shadow backwards towards Noah. And God says, I, I will not cut off all flesh again, because this is what I'm doing. I'm building up this house, which is a rainbow house, filled with my light, made out of precious stones. And that's important for our understanding of circumcision, which we may not make past. Okay. So, moving forward. Mankind's sin grows again, and it grows to the point where men are polluted, the sons of God again mixed with the daughters of men. But in the middle of that, at the Tower of Babel, where everything's gone awry, God, he, he separates everybody with languages. He makes confusion as a way to stop this spread of sin. Because if he leaves them there, he says, there is no wickedness that is not achievable for them. They'll continue to grow and grow to perfect sin until it's fully matured. Remember what James says, sin matured gives birth to death. And that's it. And so God, in his faithfulness, in keeping his covenant, separates and divides mankind at the Tower of Babel. And he divides again in chapter 12. And circumcision is given then in the Abrahamic covenant to Abram as this division. It's a cut in the flesh. And that cut, the, the Greek word means to cut around. So we're, we're making a cut in the flesh to divide flesh from flesh so that God can preserve the life of man. God has this, this elaborate mechanism by which he's moving mankind forward and we're, we're waiting both for the maturation of sin on the one hand and also the coming of the seed so that simultaneously when Jesus comes as the promised seed who's been preserved in the line of the circumcised, sin is also maturing and he, he comes and he removes in that, that sin as Jesus comes into the earth. But if you would, then flip forward to Genesis 17. And Genesis 17 is the, the establishment of the covenant. It's already been cut in Genesis 15, and we've been studying Genesis. I like to always have a study of Genesis going. It keep, keeps you refreshed in what, where the beginning is. And it means that I'm always going to give you the same, same details. But uh, we'll see, see how that transpires. But Abram's already, already been cut off. The story of Abram comes and, and God takes him out ten generations from Noah and he cuts him off from his family. He cuts him off from the land where he came from, close to Shinar, so they were part of the whole Tower of Babel kerfuffle. And he removes him and he brings him into the epicenter of sin in the land of the Canaanites. And he cuts him, he, there's cut after cut after cut, he's divided from Lot. Uh, symbolically, the birds are divided, we're not going to talk about that, but in then chapter 17 we have then God's gift of circumcision. So when Abraham was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. The, the command is be like Noah. Noah was righteous and blameless. Be blameless and I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Of course, we have then the, the reestablishment of the covenant with Abram. And in this establishment, uh, Let's skip down to verse 9. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. 
This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, anyone who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So you know, notice the reappearance of two terms from, from Genesis 6, 7, and 8. The first is flesh. So the covenant is found in the cutting of the flesh of Abraham. And God says, if you don't cut that flesh, if you don't circumcise the foreskin of your males, then that person is to be cut off from the people. That was the language God used of the flood. He's cutting off flesh. And here again we see now a cutting off, but it's minimized. He cuts off just a portion of the flesh as a sign. So the very tip of the flesh is cut off where, where the focus of man's flesh is, is located and it's cut off. And everybody, every male must do this or they're removed from the people. So they're, they're separated again. And so God is focusing. He's cutting, he's cutting, he's separating people and he's dividing out then to the person of Abraham through which he's going to preserve the world. This becomes the new Noah who, like an ark, preserves the seed until the coming of the Christ. A few things to notice there. Well, one is, if you don't do this, you're, you're cut off. You've broken the covenant. The second thing is the, the timing. Every male among you is eight days old shall be circumcised. So on the eighth day after birth, you go and you cut, cut the flesh. And... Of course, you've got one week transpired, and this is the first day of the new week. It's, it's symbolically looking at God making a new mankind. He did it with Noah. Now he's doing it with Abram, and he's doing it through this mechanism of circumcision. And the whole idea is that God must deal with sin, the sin located in the flesh. And for man to live, man must have the Spirit. For man to overcome and to have the vocation that God called him to, man must have the Spirit. And those two things can't exist together. And so God makes a cut in the flesh as a sign, again, like the rainbow, looking forward to the fullness of the circumcision that we're reading about in our passage, where God divides flesh from flesh. Now, the location in Genesis tells us a little bit more about what's, what's happening. God is dividing flesh. He's cutting it off to preserve a holy people. But what we see is that the, the problem resides in the continuity of the people of God. When God intervened in Genesis 6, he intervened in the history of mankind because the sons of God mixed with the daughters of men. So sin grew and grew and grew. And now all the households are, are wicked. And so that means all the children are wicked. And every successive generation will be wicked. And so they, the location that God chooses to cut away the foreskin is in, in the tip of the penis where, where the seed comes from. And God cuts that off. 
And Paul in Galatians, he compares this to castration. It's like God is cutting off the very unit by which children can come. And yet, before this, Abram had no children. And after this, in the next chapter, Isaac is conceived. So the very act of circumcision, and is cutting and cutting and cutting, God gives life. Circumcision then is a picture of death and resurrection in which the flesh is cut away, and God, in his great mercy, is cutting the flesh but giving life. And so you, you, you can think of this, and we are going to look at this in our passage, as stripping the entirety of the skin. You take the whole meat sack off, and... And now you're stripped down to nothing. Paul in Romans 4 says that, that uh, Abraham believed in hope against hope in God's promises. He, he believed against, against the hope of mankind and in the hope of God. And in so doing, you strip off that through which your hope comes. His hope for a child would be founded then in the flesh, but that is cut off prematurely. And then God gives life. We believe in a God who resurrects from the dead. And in that death and resurrection, true life begins. So as we think about the circumcision that God gives us, one, one of the meanings of that circumcision is it's a death that begins at the, at, that's moved from the end of life to the beginning of life. So the circumcision, we, we, we in our flesh, we, we live in fear of death. We live in fear in here, it's continuity, so the seed coming, we don't always think of it that way, but, but culturally, we should think of it. There's a form of death that's even more than just me dying. It's, I have no children. I'm cut off from the land of living, and there's, there's no succession. But God says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to move the death from the end to the beginning. And in my faithfulness, I'll work through that death and give you life. Paul, of course, is going to say that. How are we circumcised in the circumcision of Christ, having been baptized in, and into, uh, so that we're buried with him and then raised up with him? We're dead and then we're made alive. All right. There's a second aspect of circumcision I want to highlight. And there, there's more. I'm not going to... Spill all the beans. But if you go to Joshua chapter 5, we have now a, a big event of, of circumcision. And in Joshua chapter 5, history has moved forward. And we're no longer just looking at Abraham. We're, we're looking at the, the, the inauguration of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The people are right on the border. They're about to move into the promised land. And they're standing on the border of their promised land before they cross the river is the angel of the Lord, the captain of the host of high with the sword in his hand, protecting the way in. And Joshua is commanded to circumcise the people. And what they do is they take flint knives and they come and you've got millions of, of guys now that have to be circumcised that were born in the wilderness. And they're in verse Three, Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath, Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been 
circumcised. And so they obeyed. And in verse 8, Now it came about when they had finished circumcising all the nation that they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And then Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you so that the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. That's where the band name Rolling Stones came from. That was free. So, what's significant here is here they are, they're sitting on the edge of the land, and just like Abraham was circumcised in the foreskin of his flesh before, before the fulfillment of the promise of Isaac was given, before life came, here now the entire nation is situated on the border of the land of Canaan, and they're going to have to go in and fight. And yet God tells them, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take all these young guys, all your good fighting guys, and you're going to incapacitate them right where the people of Jericho can see you. And they're going to be sitting there in agony for three days, and it's easy to kill guys that way. They're an easy target. And, and so they're exposed. Again, in death, they're made alive because God walks with them across the river. He splits the way, and they're washed and cleaned and walk in and conquer Jericho. Their victory comes through the death and resurrection in the sign of circumcision. But secondly, he says, today, verse 9, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt for you. And so there, there's another idea that's attached with circumcision that we can get at here, and that coming from Egypt, they've, they've carried Egypt with them, and now they're cutting off the flesh of Egypt. This is, he, he calls it a second time that they're circumcised, and in it, they're exposed. Part of the necessity of circumcision is you're made naked. The, the, very, the, the very focus of what it means to be ashamed is uncovered in circumcision. So you, your skin is, is taken away, your clothing is taken away, you do that in the presence of your enemies, and you have nothing left but to trust in God. So there's a removal of the old flesh, and now there is what at least seems like an exposure to shame. So remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they were covered with garments of animal skins. Now that covering of, of skin is taken off, and they're exposed completely to God and man. There's a, a picture of that, then, in circumcision. And by the way, Jesus fulfills all of these on the cross. Remember, he's exposed naked before his enemies on the cross. And we, too, we come and we're exposed before God and before the world for what we are, and that flesh is stripped away. Now, God will reinvest. He gives new clothes, and that's, that's part of where we're driving at into Colossians chapter 3. He's going to pick up this image of stripping away and tell us that we're stripping away what was, and now we're putting on new clothes. God is going to invest us with new clothes so that we can live as, as kings and priests like he commanded us to. We're not there yet. First, you have to be circumcised. So then the third thing that we need to know about circumcision, so we've got the removal of shame, so exposure, the removal of the flesh through death and resurrection, and uh, there's also then the idea of being able to enter into God's presence. So if you were not circumcised, you're cut off from the people, you're removed then from access from coming near unto God. And 
And this makes sense, of course, as you think about uh, the history of God, the history of the garden, even the, the captain of the host standing there with a sword ready to kill any who enter into his midst. The flesh must be killed in order to enter into God's presence because there's always an angel or a man standing there protecting the way into God. When we come to the Mosaic Law, as the people enter into the land, the picture of circumcision grows. But it, doesn't, it doesn't shrink. Instead, it, it grows because what God is interested in, of course, is not just the propagation of the seed, but God is interested in the whole body circumcision. All of us, all of our, our sin, our flesh, needs to be stripped away. And so he gives a couple further images. One is of the ear being pierced, as in a slave. There's a, a bloody rite. You're circumcised. Your flesh is punctured, and you become a uh, you you become part of a new household. And then the second one is one we don't normally associate with circumcision, and that's the rite of the leper or the rite of the the priest. You take the blood of an animal and you put it on your ear, on your thumb, and on your 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 big toe. And that's part of the right of investing a priest into a, a new access so that they can enter the Holy of Holies and present offerings before God. And it's also part of the right of a leper before they can come back in to enter the presence of God. And both of those occur then on the eighth day. So you're, you're washed, you're made clean, and then on the eighth day, finally, you can enter. That's a, a picture looking forward to the whole body circumcision of Christ. Of course, Jesus, he does that too. His hands and his feet are pierced on the cross. His ears are stopped up when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the entirety then of the body of flesh is stripped away. In Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, of course, God tells Israel what he's looking for. Not just the circumcision of of the foreskin, but the circumcision of the heart. The whole man's circumcision uh, is what he desires. And so in our passage then, we come back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, with all of that history, and that's not even all of it, in him you were circumcised. I need to say one more thing. The, the earlobe, the thumb, the big toe, if you look at a man and you put the blood here and here and here and right on the foreskin. It's only on one side. Circumcision was also a division of mankind. And that's important to the story. It's a division between Jew and Gentile. It's a division of offices. It's a division between priest and king. And so all of man's vocation, all of who he is, well, it can't ever be fulfilled until the cut of circumcision is is healed. And in the New Testament, Paul is telling that story. You have to be circumcised to enter in. You have to be cut apart because of the sin that's embedded in the flesh of mankind. God must cut it out. And yet, God created this path in which he can cut and yet resurrect and reunite into one new man. And that's why, for Paul, reverting to circumcision is so horrible, because you're going back to the cutting after having been united into the one new man who is now priest and king, following in the footsteps of Christ. In him you were circumcised. And so Paul, writing this to the church at Colossae, he says, you have already been circumcised. Of course, the implication is there's no need to do it in the foreskin because you've been circumcised 
the whole body circumcision that comes in Christ. In him you were circumcised, and secondly then we see with a new, a better circumcision, this circumcision which is made without hands. I suggested last week that that phrase, made without hands, has some weighted significance as you walk through the Bible. It begins in, uh, in Exodus with how you make altars. You, you can't make them out of cut stones. Human hands can't go in and, and hew the stones to make an altar in which God can be worshipped. God doesn't dwell in houses made of human hands. And yet all along we've, we've got human hands doing the snipping and the cutting. So this circumcision is a better circumcision. It's one made without hands. We read Daniel chapter 2, which is the first time that phrase is used in the Bible. It's a picture of the nations being built up as the statue of man. The head of, head of gold represents then Nebuchadnezzar. And then you move down to silver and bronze and the iron mixed with clay. But embedded in that, in that metal man is also the people of God. It simultaneously represents mankind of the world, the kings, and the priests, because the house of God is made of the same stuff, gold, silver, bronze, iron. That man grows up. He's big. He's huge. There's rule, and if you read Daniel, you'll find that all of the themes that we see here are embedded in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is crowned with glory and honor, but his heart is raised up, and God has to whack him down. He becomes a goat, starts eating grass. Well, so through history, that empire grows. God's people grow with it. But there is a decay, and then the rock comes, and it's a rock cut out of a flintstone made with no hands. And he crushes this statue of the world and God's people, and it is a whole body circumcision. Jesus, in his flesh, circumcised the world. I don't mean by that universal salvation. We'll get to that in a minute. But what is God doing? Circumcision made without hands, he's building up a new and a bigger house, a new and a bigger mountain, and he's doing it without stones cut of hands. Instead, he's coming in and he's, he's wielding his, his flint stone on us. We're circumcised in Christ without hands so that each one of those stones that we read about in 1 Peter, you are living stones, costly and living stones. You've been hewed out, but you've been hewed out by God, not by human hands. So that God's house, the one who does not dwell in houses made of human hands, can make a house for himself, whereby the whole Noahic promise of the rainbow can be fulfilled. All right, enough confusing stuff. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And how does he do it? He does it in the removal of the body of flesh. The stripping of the body of flesh. So he strips away the body of flesh. We see that in Jesus on the cross. His body of flesh was stripped. He was publicly humiliated, and that public humiliation ended, culminated in his death. And then what we see, what Paul wants us to see, is that in the whole body, circumcision of Christ, he dies, he's buried, and he is raised up. In him, you follow that sequence. In him, you die, you're buried, and you're raised up. And so we too, we attach ourselves to Christ in him, and we move death from the end of life to the beginning of life. And this is critical because death holds power over us. In our flesh, we buck and we fight against death. 
We fight against one another because we're afraid. We, we struggle and, and we're agitated because we're afraid of death. But God moves that death and he conquers it. He moves it to the very beginning of our lives so that when you read in the subsequent verses, we've been buried with him in baptism and you're raised up with him through faith in the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead and you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive. He raises us up so that right now, this is, this is in the past tense, you have been made alive with him. And this isn't just then the life of the heart beating in the chest and the lungs filling with air, but the true life, the one which God made us for. When he breathed his spirit into us and he gave Adam a commission, he made us for this purpose of being with him, of being filled by him and ruling with him. And now what you see is that that's truth of the stripping of the body of flesh in the person of Christ on the cross. We are uh, we have a share in it. In Christ, this is done for you. But it's not just in Christ as, as a representative head, but instead now in verse 12, he changes the preposition from in to with. So we have a participation, a share in this dying and this resurrection. We've been buried with him in baptism, and you were raised with him through faith. So no longer just in him, not, not as if that wasn't enough, but now with him, with Christ, we are buried with Christ. We are raised with him. We're dead and then made alive. How does, this, how does this work? He says we've been buried with him in baptism. It's, it's a uniting ceremony. In baptism, you're renamed. In baptism, you are attached then to Jesus so that with him, with him we die, and with him we're raised up. And Paul's going to go on to say that, that the, the representative headship idea of which we're attached with Christ at the cross, our flesh is put to death and we're made alive, it's true, but now it has reverberating effects whereby we continue to put to death all deeds of the flesh. Because that's no longer who we are. We've been made alive, and so with him, that body, that old man of the Adamic fallen flesh is put to death, and we're raised up. We put on a new identity. We're clothed in the name of Jesus so that we belong to him. We're baptized into that name. We're adopted then as sons of God, and that becomes our new identity. We are children of the Most High God. We are the Son of God. We are in Christ kings. We are priests who serve in the house of the living God. Paul wants us to know this, and foundationally, he wants us to know how this works, how we're attached to Christ, what God has done in Christ at the cross. Not, not in this passage, because we need to know these things first to enter in. He says, this has been done to you. I'm teaching it to you now. And the reason he wants us to know that is because there's a danger as we walk. If we walk in the wisdom of the world and we walk detached from Christ, not having realized what he's done, then we'll try to pursue it on our own, apart from the working of Christ in us. But instead, verse 12, we've been buried with him in baptism and you were raised with him through faith. So we're raised up through faith in the work of God. That word working, the, the participle in verse 12, and the working of God. Um, in verse 29, it's, it's his power. 
So Paul says, for this purpose I labor, striving so that, so that every man with all wisdom will be made mature, will be brought to the end and be presented complete in Christ. For this purpose I struggle, I labor according to his power, his work. So Paul too, is, he's demonstrating for us what it means to, uh, to be with Christ through faith. And if you look at Paul's life, he says, My sufferings for your sake and my flesh, I do my share in the body of Christ and the filling up of that which is lacking in his afflictions. He's saying I'm attached with Christ. I have a participation with him, not somehow in obtaining my salvation, but I'm united with Christ to such an extent that I struggle for the same purpose for which he came and was circumcised in the whole body stripping of the flesh. And I labor, and the mechanism by which I do it is through the power of the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. And I want you, we're running out of time here, but I want you there to think about Jesus on the cross. We covered Psalm 22 now a number of months ago. But Jesus on the cross who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Before his death, he proclaims faith in the God who raises him up. He proclaims that I will proclaim your name in the midst of my brethren. I will teach those who are not yet even born about, about who you are. And so we share then in that faith, that attachment to the God who raises from the dead. In Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And what he's doing is he's building us into these building blocks, not cut by people, but cut by God so that we fit together perfectly into a building, or you can think simultaneously into the one new man whose head is Christ and we are the body. If you would stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you that today we have been buried and raised up because we exist and we live in you, in our Savior. We thank you, Lord, as we read through your word, how our Savior was stripped both for us and to lead us in the stripping of the body of flesh so that we might enter into the presence of God, so you might raise us up to rule with him, not according to the way that this world thinks of ruling and reigning, but in your way, according to your life. And so, Lord, as we consider and meditate on what our Savior has done and now who we are, our new identity, our new name, Lord, we pray that you would help us to grasp a hold of that name. And as we come to your table to overflow with the thanksgiving that can come and only come when we grasp what you have done. So we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.